This episode of The New Disruptors is made possible in part by MailChimp. More than 5 million people and businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. They also have hats for cats and small dogs. Visit MailChimp.com to sign up and give them a try. We're also brought to you this week by Indiegogo. What do the Nikola Tesla Museum, the film that won this year's Sundance Film Festival, and a baby have in common? They've all been crowdfunded on Indiegogo, the largest global crowdfunding platform, empowering people around the world to raise funds for any idea. You can choose flexible funding and keep all the funds you raise, even if you don't meet your goal. Listeners of The New Disruptors can get a 25% discount on Indiegogo fees. To take advantage, go to tnd.indiegogo.com. That's TND like the new disruptors.indiegogo.com. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit patreon.com slash new disruptors, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Thanks this week to recent patrons Andy McMillan and Andy Bayo. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that believes it's all about the journey. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You might also like listening to You Are Not So Smart. It's hosted by David McRaney, a journalist and a self-described psychology nerd. In each episode, David explores cognitive biases and delusions. He's often joined by a guest expert. You can find him and all of us at boingboing.net. Kickstarter just announced, as we record this, that it had crossed $1 billion in pledges. Cue the Dr. Evil finger to the mouth. In its five-year lifetime, of that, it's dispersed nearly $850 million in successful projects that met their goal. It's on track to facilitate maybe half a billion dollars in 2014 alone. But Kickstarter may be used as a term interchangeably with crowdfunding, and it is the 800-pound gorilla in the space. And you should really watch out for the shipping charges on the 800-pound gorilla. They can get you, especially internationally. But in its wake, hundreds of millions of dollars are being raised from all sorts of other sites and companies that fill in important aspects of the ecosystem, things that Kickstarter doesn't do, doesn't want to do, that are outside of its scope or interests. And I've got with me today Joshua Lifton, who's one of the founders of Crowd Supply, a Portland, Oregon company that crowdfunds around products. They have a very different approach to the entire life cycle of a product and a crowdfunding campaign, especially its aftermath. And we'll talk about that approach today. Joshua, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's it's great to have you on because I feel like I spend too much time talking about Kickstarter and to a lesser extent Indiegogo. And I think one of the lessons that we have with a burgeoning marketplace with so much money pouring in from people to such a diverse array of projects, it's not, you know, the billion dollars didn't go to, quote, Kickstarter, unquote. It went to 50,000, 60,000 projects there. I feel like I don't want to mislead people into thinking the only place they can go is Kickstarter, that they have to tailor themselves to it. And when I found out about crowd supply last year, I was thought, oh, this is good. This is a different approach that's so distinct. It gives people a choice based on what they're trying to do. Can you tell me what the guiding idea behind crowd supply is? You don't have to differentiate yourself from, I mean, we don't always have to define ourselves in terms of Kickstarter, but what's your gra- sure. guiding philosophy around why you started a, 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 an effort like this? Well, that's, that's a very common question that we get so i'm used to addressing it basically all the all the founders of crowd supply have an engineering and product design background uh, as well as a, a mix of e-commerce backgrounds and this uh, project is really about making a platform that we'd want to use ourselves for our own projects and when i say projects i really mean you know, products, right? Uh, we're, we're building products that we want to have manufactured and ship out to people. On, and this product is going to have a life after the crowdfunding campaign. So the, the guiding principle is really product development uh, and how to make, how to build successful products essentially, right? And crowd supply is, can be an integral part of that for a young company or product. Um, 
that seems to be a key thing that you're saying that it's not um, – I mean the, the Kickstarter thing and in, in Indiegogo and a lot of the rewards-based crowdfunding sites, they're concerned with the fundraising part, mm-hmm. like making a compelling case for the fundraising, having right. people define why they need the money and then dispersing it. And But mm-hmm. but I described this – I did a podcast with my friend Jason Stell. He interviewed me about my Kickstarter and while the experience was actually wonderful, I had the sense at the end of it that I'd been left with this baby and I had no idea how to take care of it when the thing right. was over. And that's a terrifying thing. I've gone through that. I have two children. I'm like, okay, I know how this right. feels. Crowd supply, I, don't, I feel like your philosophy is to try to get people through all the stages of yeah. it so that they're not left flat-footed at any point. Yeah, I think you know one one simple way that that comes out is you know for us it's extremely important that the product is delivered to the customer, right? And yes, we you know we call them customers because they are they have the expectation that they're buying something, right? And yes, of course there's risk with that, right? They understand that there is some chance it may not be delivered or it might be delivered late. Uh, so far, nothing has been uh, dropped, right, from from crowd supply, meaning that products uh there's never been a product that simply has has never delivered and and it's been acknowledged that it will never deliver we have a pretty good rate of of being on time uh for those projects that aren't on time the amount by which they're not on time is is much smaller than than uh what we're seeing elsewhere and so what we do to ensure that that uh that a creator can deliver the product that they're they're representing to the backers is you know we do some vetting of their manufacturing plan. We try to list out all the logistical things that that they need to take care of and make sure that they are taken care of. Whether that's through us, you know, we have a logistics and fulfillment system, or through some other means, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of impartial in that way. So as long as they have a plan that we think they can execute, that's kind of the credibility test that that we. Uh, put everyone through before they launch with us. Well, maybe walk me through this. So let's say, um, so I've had this long-standing idea of a thing that I will probably never build. Mm-hmm. You could use audio Doppler shift on a bike helmet to let people predict where cars are coming from as they're biking along. So, you know, I have an idea. I could draw up a picture of it. I have an idea about what components are involved, but I've never made uh, an electronics device like that. Mm-hmm. At what stage would I come to you? Should I, would I have a partner first or would I say, look, I have this great idea for a thing I don't know where to go with this. Is that is that too early to come to you with this an idea like this? I'd say it's never too early to talk to us. Um, if you know, too early kind of entails that we can't be useful. But but in fact, like we try to make every conversation useful to to whoever's talking to us, right? And 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 you know, also useful to us. So if somebody comes to us with an idea, they have no idea how to build it. They don't know anyone who could possibly build it, but they are really passionate about it. Then. Uh, We'll make some introductions and say, hey, you know, this person, this engineer, or this graphic designer, or this uh, IP lawyer, or whoever you need, could be interested and and talk to them. And in the meantime, here are some things you should be thinking about, right? Things you're going, you're going to have to address at some point before it becomes a product. Uh, so it's it's always good to get that that seed planted early. So, it's, so that's great. So I could I could be as early as that. And you're, I mean, because I know you're trying to foster projects. I know that you're not trying to run them yourselves and you you don't mm-hmm. want to be responsible to make them happen. But um, but that's Correct. a fairly early stage for someone who says yep. – I mean that's almost – there used to be kind of the patent lawyer office thing where people would – you know, you'd bring stuff to a patent lawyer you know, years ago back when real stuff was patented and you'd mm-hmm. say, uh, <laughs> you know, I've developed this thing and you usually bring in – you'd have to bring in some kind of working model, at least basically working in. And for some fees, someone would tell you and they might even hand you off to another outfit that would help you get it into licensing and manufacturing. But it was kind of an idea that if you had a good idea and it was producible, that, that there were people who would facilitate you getting through. It seems like you're filling a role a little bit like that, not the patent on mm-hmm. the intellectual property part, but that you're going to help people figure out if something's uh, practical to make or not. Yeah. yeah. And this is, you know, there is, a, you know, of course, uh, some sense of, of just helping the community, but this is not a purely altruistic uh, effort, right? We want you to come back with a product that is well-formed and is executable and, and you know, is, is going to be a success. So it's it's very much in our interest to to make sure that you're talking to the right people. No, um, if I come in at a later stage and let's say, all right, all right, I've got this bike helmet with this thing rigged up. I found an electrical engineer who knows how to make this stuff and he's got audio signal processing. So I'm bringing in a thing. I mean, not maybe literally to your offices, but I have, mm-hmm. I have a working prototype and I made a video of it and whatever. And like, now I want to get to the next stage. Like, I don't know how mm-hmm. to take a prototype. Can I come to you and say, uh, you know, can you help me with budgeting? Is it coming mm-hmm. at that stage, or do I need to be more further developed with a business plan once I've got to say a prototype stage? 
Well, again, we're happy to talk at any stage, but the point at which we would give you the green light to launch on crowd supply is the point uh, at which you have that that plan for building the thing and that it's a credible plan and that you're asking for the right amount of money, right? So if you come to me and say, hey, uh, I want I have this, this plan for a flying car and I only need $5,000, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm going to probably just glance at it and say, you need a lot more than $5,000, and here's why. And uh, you know, let's let's please revise this and come back to us, right? And and, we, and that there have actually been cases where we've we've rejected people because they weren't asking for enough money, right? Um, and and they've come back and with with the right amount of money, uh, asking for the right amount of money um, later. And that seems like a key differentiating factor too is that most rewards based crowdfunding sites, well, a many and especially Kickstarter, they're they're not vetting anything except that you meet the guidelines. And what you mm-hmm. say does not sound it does not sound prima facie or even implicitly like illegal or impractical. Mm-hmm. Like you're not saying, you know, if you came to if you try to launch a project for a perpetual motion machine on Kickstarter, I can guarantee you they will not approve it. But they might launch a machine that that you know uh, simulates practical uh, fusion at a low scale if it sounded credible. Right. Uh, but they're not going to go hire a physicist and ask, is this really realistic? They're going to rely on the community. But in your case, it seems like crowd supply. Like you're trying to provide at each layer. Uh, a more fundamental footing that the thing is practical, that this isn't, you know, when you say, you know, you have to have a plan uh, before you can launch, you have to have a budget Mm -hmm. and the budget has to be realistic. So that's, you know, this gets into the expertise of you and your partners. How Mm -hmm. do you evaluate whether a budget is realistic to make something that hasn't been made? Well, uh, there's, it it turns out most types of physical products uh, fall into one of, maybe half a dozen categories, right? There's kind of the the heavy tooling product or there's the new manufacturing process product. And so, you know, a lot of those buckets, we have the expertise ourselves or at least, you know, the kind of back of the envelope expertise. And for those that we don't, you know, we, we've drawn our network, right? So we, we know lots of people who are interested in making lots of different types of things. And if, uh, for example, in your, your example of uh, the bike helmet, uh, I know a guy, uh, Ted Selker. He was a, a professor of mine at one point, and he he was making a bike helmet, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, that that had very similar. Uh, it, was, it was for the same the same idea. I don't think they were using the Doppler shift. I think it was a, a audio or a, a a visual element. Oh, I'm um, gonna have to go buy one of those. <laughs> I, I don't think it's out yet. Oh, but, uh, well, I'm yeah. that. that's hilarious. Good. Uh, but you have a guy. He's so he's you know so he knows how to build bike helmets. He knows how to integrate electronics into them mm-hmm. well uh, he he's done it before yeah. I, i'm not saying he's you know so we, i would certainly want to connect you with him uh just so you can bounce ideas off him and see what's been done before kind of prior art sort of stuff mm-hmm. um now we're by no means you know this is not the, the final stamp of approval this is just the gut check yeah that seems reasonable like so, somebody with with a reasonable amount of engineering experience and a reasonable amount of experience producing physical things can look at that and say yeah i can see how that could happen right now there's a lot more detail and a lot more due diligence that needs to happen on on your side really right to to make sure that this this is the right plan for you right to make sure that i can actually that i can fulfill it that i've got that's the right. resources and so forth well that's what's it's funny too is you know i having gone through the budgeting exercise for something simple like a book mm-hmm. a book is a known quantity people make mm-hmm. books a billion times several billion times a year right. books are made and and yet even with that i found it difficult sometimes to get the numbers I needed, yeah. and then during the process, I discovered, for instance, the printer we went with originally, we decided they actually couldn't do a good hardcover book. They yep. were better at soft covers. <laughs> so we had to find a new printer. We wound up lowering our cost and adding features, which was a nice surprise. But th- that is that question is when you, um, even in the vetting stage, you're going to ask people, like either you have the expertise, you'll ask people, you know, is this practical? But the the budgeting part, I do get, I do wonder, especially with prototyping. Now, now you mentioned, mm-hmm. for instance, I mean, we could talk about those categories, like heavy tooling. Uh, you, that that is a fixed thing. Like you know, if I need to make a specific kind of machine tool to make a certain kind of part, you can go to a company and say, "What would it cost to make? You know, what what is the setup cost? Is it you know five thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars, five hundred dollars to make the thing that will make you know a hundred of these uh, these parts? Mm-hmm. Um, so how much does that play in where you're where you're trying to? Um, I guess I want to know how much how granular you get with the potential uh, project people about having really exact numbers versus them understanding maybe the universe of what costs could be the range of what costs could be. Well, a common, a common mistake that we see uh, quite regularly is 
that people come to us and say, here's the budget. I've talked to my manufacturing guy. He says it's going to be $3,500 per mold and I need, you know, 12 molds. Mm -hmm. So there's two questions right away that, that uh, usually get people, you know, send people off on another research mission. One is, well, did you talk to anyone else? Did you just talk to this one manufacturer or did you talk to five, right? Because you should be really talking to like six or a dozen, right? To see what they have to offer and how they how they're different. Where does Alibaba um, and and that kind of thing come in? Alibaba I realize is it's sometimes just parts, but it's mm-hmm. it's manufacturing as well, right? You can contract that out. Is that a reliable? I mean, I know people talk about it all the time, but is that do you you know tell people make sure and go to Alibaba, but also find, or is that a totally separate kind of thing because it involves offshoring uh, uh, creation? We usually offshoring is, is you know obviously there are great economies of scale uh, to be had with offshoring, but for an individual product developer making usually their first product and usually in low quantities, it's almost always a bad idea to to go offshore uh, just just economically, right? Someplace if it can be made domestically and probably near them, you'd advise yeah. them to find something yeah. close to where they can someplace they can actually go and talk yeah. to people in person, even potentially. Yeah. Because even if it's less on, you know, the quote comes in less for offshoring, the reality is it's likely going to end up being more because you're going to have to make some trips out there. Things aren't going to go exactly as planned and you have to kind of retool. A really good example of that actually is a campaign we have running now uh, for a Portland-made highly technical outdoor jacket, right, that you could kind of ski in and go to the clubs in and kind of all-purpose jacket. And this is a guy who's been... He did two other campaigns with us previously, also for jackets, and those previous jackets were made in China at, at places that he's worked at before. He had a relationship with, with that factory. And even then, uh, with that under his belt, he had to, you know, it was late because the factory punted him down the line because there were more important customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he decided, you know, I'm just going to make a, a more expensive product, but one that I can literally go down the street to watch it being made by people that I know uh, and and I can give them advice or I, we can quickly iterate on it and it'll be a higher quality product in the end. Let me take a break to tell you about another of this week's sponsors, Media Temple. Now, hold on because I've been talking about Media Temple for a few weeks. You may think you've heard everything, but they've got some new services that I'm going to tell you about this week plus a special offer at the end of the message for our listeners. So you know about Media Temple's grid service because I've already told you about that. You can host anything from a portfolio site to a hundred different client projects. Hundreds of servers work together in the cloud to keep your sites online. They offer terrific 24 by 7 live support. You get 100 gigabytes of storage, one terabyte of bandwidth, one-click install for WordPress. The grid web hosting now comes with SSDs, which will load sites up to 50% faster. And they also have virtual private server solutions with DV Developer and DV Managed hosting plans. But you know all that. Let me tell you about two new things that may be of great interest to listeners of this show. First, managed WordPress hosting. Now, if you've worked with a WordPress site, you know one of the most difficult things is keeping it up-to-date and secure and dealing with the uneven load when you get huge amount of traffic coming through to something you posted, you don't expect it. So they offer hosted WordPress, which is, people are familiar with, but it comes with unlimited bandwidth, and you can do three WordPress installs, and these come with integrated email as well. So that's one thing. The other is managed hosting, which is hosting handled by Media Temple's team of in-house engineers. This is new. You don't have to deal with server administration. Media Temple's cloud tech engineers take care of everything. They monitor, optimize, and protect your service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Let them manage your hosting. You manage your business. There's a special discount for New Disruptors listeners. So enter the promo code TND, lowercase TND for The New Disruptors. Get 25% off your first month of web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net, enter promo code TND on signing up. Check out their new services and give them a spin. And now, back to the podcast. Right, so it's one thing if I need a, I need a thousand, you know, ten ohm resistors, I should probably order them from China and deal with the shipping time. Yeah, but if I need, uh, you know, a, a five hundred units assembled into something, maybe the communications delay, the time zone difference. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny. I try not to get. I don't mean to get down on China or any offshore no, entity yeah. in this podcast, but I think people assume it's always going to be better, cheaper, and and 
easier. And it sounds like on the ground issues are can be huge. Like, do you have the time and money to fly to China if you need to? Yeah. Will they will they let you come and come to right. the factory and right. do it? You know, I was talking to uh, oh, Dean Putney, who was a previous guest on the show, did this wonderful book that I now have in my hot little hand, this beautiful photo album. And he wound up getting it printed overseas because what he wanted. And he found a great printer. It was printed beautifully. It's fantastic. But I think four to six weeks were added on the schedule without mm-hmm. his involvement for shipping. It didn't get out. It got out like a month plus late. And, you know, he was disappointed. Nobody was upset. It was a book. It's not a cure for cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, and, he, and he did it so fast that even a month late, it felt early. Right. However, that kind of thing, that was in the last moment. And I hear that all the time where someone gets everything's tooling, like literally tooling along because mm-hmm. <laughs> we're sorry, but they're tooling along and then they're told, okay, yeah, another thing came in. Uh, it's a holiday week in China. Everyone is gone for 10 right. days. People forget to factor in that time when everyone travels yep. out to the country. Like yep. all these things happen and it's outside, you know, as opposed to so I think people don't always seem to factor in the cost or the the issue of if you get if you push everything back six to eight weeks that six to eight weeks that you can't be selling the stuff and you can't move into your next cycle to sell mm-hmm, the stuff too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you know I I agree with what you said. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with getting something manufactured in China, and, and oftentimes it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when you but, scale up too, I would think too. Yeah. Five hundred is one thing. Fifty thousand maybe there's only affordable right. if you right. go to China, and then you build that into the schedule, the time, the trips, right. and so forth. Yeah. To, to your comment about the thousand resistors, I would get those on DigiKey or something like that. Right? I'm sorry. <laughs> if, 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 if you're looking for a hundred thousand or a million yes. resistors, maybe maybe then China. But, I can't uh, get those from Radio Shack anymore. Yeah. They don't yeah. stock them. But all right. But so this is. I mean, we're talking about each of these phases. So the prototyping phase, you've got this thing where people can come in at different stages with different levels of ideas and different levels mm-hmm. of completion. But you're trying to make sure this is a practical, achievable thing. And then I want to yep. – I, I emphasize that and I've talked to people about that because Kickstarter famously posted this thing uh, I think over a year ago now saying mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kickstarter is not a pre-order site. And that redefined what they were because people were starting to feel like they were shifting towards being pre-ordered. People would sell – you know, there'd be a product that would go up and you could buy one or you could buy 500 and distributors were getting involved at early stages. And that tended to boost up not just the dollar volume of projects, but often the expectations mm-hmm. and Kickstarter system, I feel like it. And I think the same thing, Indiegogo and everyone in that sort of middle funding stage realm where really the funding is a critical part. It is hard to be a pre-order when you're geared around the idea of supporting an idea, but you guys mm-hmm. are are geared around supporting several things. It's, I, it's it's planning, idea, funding, execution, and fulfillment. And so, mm-hmm. I I just I mean, we should talk about the genesis of that. Was there a market niche? Uh, is there like a missing piece? And you said, "Holy cow! No one really is in this space. We need to get in there." Well, yeah. So, so you know, your reference to that uh, that in the crowdfunding world, fairly infamous uh, uh, blog post. Uh, the exact title of which was Kickstarter is not a store. Okay, right. Uh, and that was, uh, I know the, the date very well because that was really the genesis of crowd supply, right? It was September 20th, <laughs> uh, 2012, I think. Oh, was that long? Right. And so that's that was, hey, they just wrote our business plan for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> and well, and so what happened is is my, my co-founders, some of my co-founders were together and uh, at the time they were heavily entrenched in in kind of ramping up a bunch of different e-commerce uh, businesses, right? And e-commerce, the whole the point of it is, is yeah, it is a store, right? And really the thinking was that uh, the, the hard part about e-commerce is that you have to make sure that people can only order things that you have in your warehouse ready to ship. And, uh, you know, it dawned on everyone that, well, in crowdfunding, uh, it's just the opposite, right? You, you order things <laughs> that you don't have, and you know, how, hard, how hard could that be, right? So that was the kind of naive genesis of, of, of Crown Supply. Six months later, on March 20th, 2013, we, we launched uh, our public website, and we have a fulfillment system in place. We have uh, kind of all the pieces that we thought were needed and that were being neglected or, or actually actively discouraged by Kickstarter and others. So just a simple example, right? Um, the delivery date, right, for for this reward level, uh, this pledge level, uh, is listed right near the the back this project button. And on Kickstarter, that's a single like static piece of text that uh, you type in once and forget about. And then you know if you're the Pebble Watch, that means that all seventy thousand people who ordered one think they're going to get it on the same day. Yes, right? right. Which is a somewhat you know ludicrous thing to think when you know, and it's kind of obvious that that's not going to happen. And so on crowd supply, we have a built-in manufacturing schedule. So we, we talk to you enough and understand your, your plan enough to put in 
a, a production schedule that's something to the effect of, okay, well, this month I can deliver a thousand units, and the next month I can deliver another thousand, and then the, by the third month I'll ramp up to three thousand units a month, and then thereafter I can do five thousand or something like that. I've right? seen a so, simulation of that too on Kickstarter. There was one campaign that said, um, uh, but this shows, I think, the limits of it and their, their antennas. It was like, you know, uh, the reward level, whatever, 500 units ships mm-hmm. January. Reward level, same price, 500 mm-hmm. units maximum ships right. February and so on because – so people were trying to factor that in. But mm-hmm. um, it is a little bit – you know, I never talked on Kickstarter as such because they have a very particular purpose and they've stuck to it and it's worked. Mm-hmm. But but that is a little bit of round peg into square hole, right? Is yeah. that uh, uh, it doesn't – you can make it happen but you're not really using the system in a way that is designed for the best benefit of the – user to understand yeah Yeah, it's going to hurt you right because any sort of friction uh coming from an e-commerce background that we have you know any sort of friction for for misunderstanding or you know the number of clicks you have to go through to put down money for something you want to buy that's going to reduce your sales right right that Um, was the lesson i was at amazon uh back in its early days and friction mm -hmm. was the watchword in every single thing designed from then to now there and in all Mm -hmm. sensible e-commerce sites anything that causes anyone to hesitate a fraction of a second Reduces sales, and I mean that, but that gets to the heart of it too. Is that what you know? What do you think of crowd supply as? I mean, Kickstarter is a people want to fulfill their vision. That's their that's their thing. This isn't necessarily commercial, even when it is. You know, I, mm-hmm. I raise money for something. I'm a for profit company, and I raise mm-hmm. money for a book, and people are getting a book. But some people support it at patronage levels above that, and so there's a there's an aura of this is a place to fund ideas, and incidentally, you'll get something in reply. Where does crowd supply? How do you envision what you are relative to, say, the culture of ideas versus the culture of, like, manufacturing and making stuff? Well, uh, you know, I, I I listened to your podcast with uh, the CEO – the now CEO of, of Kickstarter, uh, Yancey, and I learned a lot from that podcast. I, I didn't really understand Kickstarter culture like I do now after listening to that. And, and it just, it's just really clear that they come from a, a, an arts background and kind of the arts patronage background and that's where kickstarter got its its footing um you know crowd supply really is is about innovation and ideas as well right just not necessarily so focused on the arts right you Mm -hmm. can be just as creative or even more creative uh building a product that the world has never seen before that's somehow faster better new whatever it is as you can making an album right and so we uh we do see it as a creative process, a very creative process. It's a, it's a passionate process. You know, people, product uh, developers are uh, you border on the insane oftentimes because of their passion, <laughs> and 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 it really is you know a, a kind of life's work in some ways for for a lot of these people. Uh, and and those are I'd say those are the ones that are the most successful mm-hmm. right at, at crowdfunding. Obsession especially. sells, yeah. but I mean that's yeah. so. The, I mean this could this gets back to like how do you build an audience for the thing that hasn't been made yet. And I mean, that's mm-hmm. the eternal question for it. It goes back to the, whenever <laughs> the first time anyone ever made something that was sold or bartered is uh, right. that the, the other person had it made. It goes back to that. And I think crowdfunding seems to answer a question about how do you make that connection with people to, mm-hmm. to bring to, that's, that's not just, I mean, this is where the borderline between what you're doing with pre-ordering versus supporting an idea. I think you're, that line is very, very close. Kickstarter, they've, they pushed it, you know, they put their hands in and they pulled it apart. You guys pushed it together, but there still is that line between we have to, you're making it more credible that people coming to you because of your vetting process are more likely to Uh achieve a result in a timely fashion. Uh So backers have more of a sense of confidence, but at the same time, people's obsessions and ideas that are, can be practically implemented are being supported. So there still is that, even though it's much more like a pre-order or, you know, you're still backing a vision. There's not the vision still there. Yeah, I, I think that for I think the core uh, backers for every project really believe in that project, really believe in that product, and uh, they're doing it, they're backing it, they're putting their money down because yes, they want the the thing that's going to re- be the result of this, but but also because they just believe in it and they believe in the people behind it. Now, uh, that's the core, right? And then around that core, you you know they, they'll spread the word, and and you'll kind of get the more casual consumer. Right. Who, yes, they think it's a good idea, but really they just want the thing. Right. And I think this goes to the heart of crowdfunding in general, regardless of where you launch your your project. It's really, uh, you know, the dirty secret of crowdfunding is that is that the crowd isn't there waiting for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
by and large, you're bringing the crowd to the platform, not the other way around. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want to make uh, sure and get to that because that's before the thing ever launches is uh, – I mean how do people – I mean I, I know how, how to build an audience. I've been doing that for, mm-hmm. for decades. But mm-hmm. when you have something new, this has always been the problem where like the arts is sometimes easier because people do – they do a play and they do a different play. They do a dance, a different yep. dance, a song, a different dance. And people follow right. them along. But right. product and a different product is much harder. Yep. How do people bring their audience with them or how do they find an audience before they launch something? like this with you well oftentimes they're they're in touch with their their first uh you know alpha users or or beta users before it it even becomes a campaign uh other times they've you know they have some experience uh although like you said even doing the same thing twice in in the product world or or two similar things is, is sometimes a bad idea right because you've already satisfied the need the first time. And so you better be doing something different enough to warrant uh, another purchase, right? Mm-hmm. But there's essentially your friends and family, right? The people who uh, who you know or are within, you know, pretty close to your, your node in the network. And then there's everyone else, right? And getting to everyone else is the trick. Although there are many products that are just fam- friends and family. Now, uh, Dan Shapiro had a project on Kickstarter. And oh, I don't Ro- know. Robot Turtles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I talked to him a, a few weeks ago and, oh, cool. and uh, visited his uh, his shop. It's, yeah, it's very oh, fun. Cool. How's it coming along? It's fulfilled. He did an amazing job. It's, oh, um, I'll, I'll yeah. put the link in the show notes for yeah. folks to listen, but he had remarkably few holdups. He had a domestic game printer mm-hmm. that could deal with the scale up from when he thought he might do 1,000 up to 25,000. They did fine, mm-hmm. and he got it all shipped out. In fact, he's been a great source of advice, and I will be writing up <laughs> some yeah. more about the, yeah. about how you ship things through Amazon and through into international orders. I learned a lot right. about shipping, as right. I imagine you guys right. already know. But yeah, yeah, his project was, you know, it went up 25-fold above his plan. Yeah. Yeah. And so so I don't know Dan at all. We've never met or anything. But I often point people to his blog post that, mm. uh, that he wrote about his Robot Turtles campaign, kind of partway through it, I think. And he was, you know, I think he did a, a great service for everyone in the community to kind of open kimono style show his his analytics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and sort of where his traffic sources were, you know, all his thinking around uh, his video and the production and, and whatnot. And he does, you know. He, I think, he correctly sees that a large chunk of traffic is from just sources that he generated uh, through his hard work that, that picked up the story and then pointed to his campaign page, right? And so that's really where a campaign is going to succeed or not, or, or over succeed or not. Well, and you've got a bunch of help that I think is is unique to my knowledge mm-hmm. for the pre-campaign phase. That mm-hmm. once you get people get along, that they can be collecting names of people to contact, yep. and mm-hmm. you also you've, you're offering media help. You know, the, you're yep. not out there. I know directly marketing necessarily, although I'm sure you talk about projects when you talk to media like me. But mm-hmm. that those are things that I'm, I'm not sure any other crowdfunding site. There's a few small ones I think that are very very particular niches that do that. Mm-hmm. But that seems to be something that you're trying to help actively with, which makes mm-hmm. it a little more, you know, your role in making sure this, these are products that get sold, yep. that you're up front with people to help them gather that audience as well and to find the right, yep. you know, just knowing if you know the right person at Gizmodo and you say, look, I know you get a million pitches, but this one is actually interesting. And they go, oh, right. yeah, it is. And they write something up. Having yep. that connection is invaluable from a yep. PR standpoint. Yeah, it's it, part, part of it's connections, absolutely. Part of it is knowing just how to uh, formulate the pitch, right, to somebody who sees 100 pitches a day, you know, yours has to stand out, has to be short and, and sweet. But yeah, we, we do uh, have in-house marketing that we apply to every single project that comes through us. And then we have kind of another layer of marketing that will take a much more active role than what we normally do. And for that, we would take a, a larger percentage. But that's great because that's what mo- – I mean some people are, are natural marketers. Some people are accidentally mm-hmm. – they don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And they wind up like uh, – you know, we go back way back to uh, our friends at Studio Neat, uh, Tom and Dan, who I don't think they knew they were natural marketers. But Glyph and then their subsequent products, they have this great combination of enthusiasm and a non-markety tone about mm-hmm. the stuff they're doing that is just appealing to people to write about. And so part of how they've been successful is not just making something great that people want, but in communicating it in a way that gets people fired up about it. Like, I'm fired yeah. up about this piece of plastic with a metal boss right. in it. Like, whoa! <laughs> and they were, you know? Because right. they're in, and being able to translate that not everyone can and getting the help yeah. to do that makes yeah. it more likely people will succeed as well. Yep, yep. Yeah, and that's, you know, we've been very uh, uh, happy to see 
you know, project. It's, it's really interesting to see projects start from the idea that they had walking in the door and then end up with something successful that, that has transformed in, in the process. So we're, that's something very gratifying for us to do. Let me take a brief pause to thank one of this week's sponsors, MailChimp. You've probably heard about MailChimp because you receive email. In 2013, they sent out on behalf of the mailing lists that they help people run 70 billion messages. They're working with over 5 million people and businesses around the world to help send out email newsletters. It's very simple to sign up. They have a free offer to get started where you can just use their service up to a certain point. And when your list grows big enough that it's useful to you, then you can start to pay their low fees. At the magazine, we use MailChimp because it was the best way to start. It gives us a lot of flexibility. We can customize forms. We know that the mail will get through because they understand how to help you tailor messages that don't get caught by filters. If you want to read some interesting statistics about the amount of messages that MailChimp processes, go to MailChimp.com slash 2013 to read their annual report. They also make hats for cats and small dogs. MailChimp.com. Go there and give them a visit. They were kind enough to help support us during our Kickstarter campaign for the magazine's book, and it was a real help to get us over the top. Thanks very much. And now back to the podcast. Well, so there's another thing you do that I I remember. This is one of the reasons I got in touch. I think back whenever when I wrote about you guys is that mm-hmm. it was it was there's this that inflection point um, when you're on most crowdfunding sites and you're running a project. There's some really key points, right? There's points where you hit 50% and you're like, this is great. I'm very, very likely to fund now. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Remember mm-hmm. the moment I hit 50%, I'm like, okay, we're about 97% likely now based on the statistics. This is great. Right. But there's a key number, which is 100%. And when you're on almost any other crowdfunding site, you get to 100% and it's exciting and the red light goes green or whatever. And people who come subsequently say, okay, this thing's funded. So now it's going to happen. And when I give my money, I'm giving it towards something that's going to happen. But mm-hmm. that's all that happens. It doesn't make a big change. On your site, right. this was to me, I think uh, I think it's actually quite brilliant, is that you have an inflection point. What happens when the crowdfunding number is reached and you've hit 100% for a campaign? Sure. So let's say you have a 30-day campaign and uh, you do everything right and uh, you have a great plan for producing – 100 uh, widgets, right? And but the only thing that, that's wrong with it is you, you underestimate the popularity of this of this widget. And on day two, you're at 100% right. Right, of, of your funding. So on that day, we will collect all of those funds and you know, those, those funds will be transacted. They'll end up in your bank account you know, uh, no more than a week later, sometimes that day, depending on, on how our payment processor is feeling. Uh, and well, let me back up there a second. So the so you hit 100. percent It's processed immediately. It's not yep. a okay. We have to wait to the end of the campaign. Correct. It, the 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 guillotine comes down yep. and the payment processor goes, and that money is then transferred. So I think that okay. So that's step one, which is great. So the mm-hmm. so the project funds and the money is released. Yep. Well, the money that's been oh, the portion, right? We should talk about that. But right. So, yeah. But the the backers are now charged, and the project has funded. Yes. So the, the everyone who's put money up uh put money down up to that point is charged and then uh subsequent backers uh are you know funding is collected but in the meantime you're off to the races and the, the reason we do this is because we want you to execute the plan that you laid out right and we want you to do it as soon as possible and we don't want you to change the plan that much right so there is always the temptation to, well, you know, I'm going to make more than I thought I was going to, so I'm going to do some other tooling. I'm going to change factories, et cetera. And that's kind of a recipe for disaster usually. Right. Uh, so go with the known. So, And this ties in with that quantity thing. So you, so I've got a plan. I need to raise $30,000. I have 30 days to do it, and mm-hmm. I'm going to make 100 widgets. And, and if I do more than 100, the shipping date is now two months after those first 100. And it would be great if I made 100, but that gets me to my goal. So then exactly. I funded, and suddenly it's yep. day two. $30,000 has come in, the credit cards are charged, and you say to me... I say, you know, go. Go, go make your thing, right? <laughs> right. And, and money's and, uh, coming, and go do that plan, yeah. to execute on the part that yeah. gets you to that And that in the goal. meantime, we'll, we'll keep collecting money for you. Uh, and at the end of the campaign, that by the end of the, the campaign date, we'll transfer the, the remainder of the money. And then and really, the end of the campaign isn't really the end of the campaign. It's the end of the campaign, but it's not the end of the product on CrowdSupply. Uh, so, so foundationally, CrowdSupply... 
once a product launches on Crown Supply, it's there until you don't want it to be. It, it's right? explicitly you switch from the funding point. You switch from it's no longer fund an idea as part of the thinking. Now it's pre-orders. It's it's a different thing. Now every order is processed. It's not a uh, it's not perspective anymore. It's now it's, this is a thing. That's right. And then even after the the date that you set as the end date of the campaign, we'll then flip it to what we call pre-orders, uh, mm-hmm. which is just you know it's being made. It's they're off doing it, and there's much less risk now. So uh, you basically hold your place in line by putting money down. And then once the creator has delivered those first hundred widgets, we release the pre-order money uh, to the creator. And uh, they go off and make the next batch. This is great. So let, let me walk through that a little bit because I think it's I think it's mm-hmm. complicated. It's like simple at one level. Like as a consumer, yeah. I come and I see one of three things: either I see it's still funding, it's funded, or we're in a retail position. It's a pre-order yep. or it's actually shipping. Correct. Uh, from the backer or from the uh, creator standpoint, so I've got a stage. Stage one is getting to 100 percent of what I may or what I need mm-hmm. to raise. I hit that yep. point, the money's released. Stage yep. two is the remainder of the. The period of time I set for funding is that what it is? Correct. Still, okay. Yep. Yep. So stage two is is just basically just gravy at that point, right? So um, in our in that model, so in the in the funded on day two thing, it's day two point five to day thirty. That's right. Those, that's a that's still that's almost like pre orders, but that's the next batch, and you collect that money until the end of that period. That's right, and then you get at the end of that period, we'll we'll. Uh, run those transactions, and that will end up in your bank account. Oh, that's great! And then, and then after that, so now I'm now I'm through that thing. I'm in the middle of making my stuff. What does it look like at the end of the campaign? You so say you switch to actual pre-orders, or is that an option for people, or is that something that then happens until they're further along the campaign, where you're taking additional, essentially retail pre-orders? It's it's purely optional. Uh, most people want to do it unless yeah. they unless they only want to make let's say a hundred of these things for for limited edition reasons, right? But uh, if you're going to produce a product after the campaign anyway it makes sense to collect money while you're producing it as well so that's so that's stage three right what we call pre-orders and that can be anywhere from you know a couple of days while you're making your your first batch to six months or however long it takes to make it right and then i could actually be lucky enough to say okay those are coming in so now you know Mm -hmm. instead of doing a thousand of these i'm going to do two thousand and now i have Mm -hmm. i have inventory so what do i do with my inventory so then we will uh We'll, you can sell it anywhere you want, first of all, right? And you can one of those places can be Crowd Supply, and usually uh, that makes a lot of sense to people because the the URL, right, the, the actual link you're going to go to to buy this thing on Crowd Supply is the same as the link for the campaign, which was the same as the link for the pre-order period, which is the same as what everyone has been talking about, presumably, uh, and linking to, right? All the all those uh, media assets that are out there that you worked hard to get, you know, for in your marketing efforts, uh, the blog posts and the, the articles, they all link to this page and that page is going to live on for mm-hmm. as long as you're making this product. So and that's you know, a we'll key buy- thing. That's that thing yeah. that drives me crazy. You know what? Yeah. I forgot <laughs> that I couldn't change my Kickstarter page when the campaign was over. I was too tied up and people were telling me, remember to change it, remember to change it. And I blanked yeah. out. And then I, yeah. I have a page that's fixed forever with the yep. last stage of the campaign. Yep. People come and they find it. They don't know the state of the book. They don't know what's going on. I can post updates, yeah. but I think you, the fact that your pages are malleable, that yeah. they reflect the current state of the thing as opposed to the state of just the funding stage is, is really key. It's a really yep. key differentiator. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, I mean, why wouldn't you want that as, as a product developer? It, it only makes sense, uh, really. So, so yeah, that's that, you know, we'll, we'll take inventory risk. Uh, you know, all we ask is that we get the same good deal that you'd give any other wholesaler and you can go off and sell your thing on your own store or uh, through other sales channels, whatever you want. Well, and you know, I want. To, I think as since we talked through the whole process, I think we should talk about maybe some specific mm-hmm. projects too, because I know this winds up being kind of abstract. We were talking about, you know, uh, what if you did this? What if you did that? But but you've sure. got now. I don't know how many projects have gone through, but I'm looking at the list of things that have been funded over the last several months. Stuff that's in full production. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this huge array. You know, I think when any uh, crowdfunding site starts, a lot of the stuff it can be modest and it starts up with. Mm-hmm. And then now I see, you know, a few months after the last time we talked, I see you've got things that have been pledged anywhere from several hundred dollars to many tens of thousands of dollars. You're starting mm-hmm. to have that filled out range of, yep. of things that are more expensive to make, but also that now have had big success. And mm-hmm. I wonder if we should talk, you know, there's a good example is the circuit stickers because um, that's uh, created by one of our uh, 
uh, this is Bunny Huang's project, right? Yep, that's yeah, right. And Bunny, Bunny, Bunny Huang and, and uh, Ji Chi. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and so I've got yeah. Bunny uh, and I did an interview uh, several months ago, which I'll link to in the show notes. And this is like this uh, this fun. It's typically Bunny. It's incredibly fun and uh, and interesting. And it's got you know kids can use it yep. and uh, whatever. And like an amazing amount of illustration and it's just like very very well conceived thing. Yeah. Um, and I want to break something down too because so some of the the rewards based crowdfunding where it's focused more on the idea. There's often this idea that you have this huge range of rewards and you go from this range of pure product up to extreme patronage. Now on crowd supply, as I look through campaigns, I feel like the point here is much more – it's more focused on the product. There are some patronage-style things. People can get limited editions or specials or like one mm-hmm. product, uh, the Helium, has like a $5,000 bespoke thing. Like we'll make something for mm-hmm. you. you right. know? And that's great. Their they're, you know, main units are hundreds of dollars. So they're not cheap. But for 5000 bucks, we will make you a custom thing including whatever. And it's you know that's great. But it, and that is a form of patronage obviously because mm-hmm. it, it's over and above the cost it takes them yep. to do it. But the focus on products – so when I look at the uh, circuit stickers, like this is uh, a bunch of different kinds of things people could buy depending on how interested or, or what they wanted to do. And, and mm-hmm. how, does that, how does that shape how projects are developed, that, that stronger focus on delivering an item as opposed to an mm-hmm. experience let's say? Well, that's one of the things that we, we really have – uh, I think we've been most valuable. Our advice has been most valuable for creators is is what the pledge level should actually be, right? And so, in the specific case of circuit stickers, you know, when I think up until maybe a week before the the project was going to launch, the only pledge levels that were there were were the starter kit and the add ons, but notably missing was the deluxe kit, right? Which is the most expensive one there, and kind of the basically it's a packaged version of all the other kits uh, together. And you know, we looked at it and we said, you know. Bunny people, PBS people will be happy to spend twenty five dollars on on a starter kit and probably another fifteen for for an add on kit or whatever it is. But really, they're going to want everything all at once, right? And so you should really make a higher a higher end version. And that ended up being the most popular pledge level for that campaign. Oh, that's like, what was the higher end version? I see a lot of deluxe levels. That that's what it, yeah it was eighty nine dollars and uh, it was simply the starter kit plus the four add on kits packaged up together. Oh, I see. Right? That's great. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, and then you have and then this is again this I think reflects the difference is that there are 100 pack levels. I could order 100 mm-hmm. deluxe kits and it's a discount. It was $7200, yep. not $8900. Right. Um that seems like a key differentiator too and in yep. because it's it, this is going to go into manufacture and so as a buyer, I can predict that this is actually – this is part of the plan is to make these quantities. That that, that delivering 100 to me is not going to be something weird um, yep. because it's part of the plan. Yeah, and you know, in, in our in our conversations with Bunny, uh, he was drawn to us, I think, mostly because we handle all the logistics, right? I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's a very savvy creator, and he he's done products before. He's he's been uh, you know in every every level of the chain um, of, of making a product, and uh, he just recognized the value of having a single point of logistics for the sales, for the fulfillment, for all of that. And that's, I think that's why it went with us. Well, I can tell you, even for the book standpoint, you know, I'm making, again, I always come back to the book because a book is a typical thing. Book is nothing right. unusual about it. <laughs> There's one version. And I'm working on the like, yeah, it's like I'm going to have books, the books are being printed in Wisconsin and then there's some will be shipped to three different Amazon warehouses. I'll be uploading spreadsheets to Amazon to mm-hmm. ship these out. They're going to stock them as well for me. Then another set is going to go to New Jersey to a fulfillment house that does international work. Another set is going to come to me for direct sales, either to people or events I do locally, like that's a lot of handling for a book, you know. Yep. <laughs> and that doesn't get you into like a thousand diodes or you know or electronic LED parts or right. whatever. And every time, I and mean, you've listened to this podcast, you know, and any regular listeners yep. know, every time I talk to anybody about products, <laughs> unless you've done very modestly, like you hit your original goal of you know X hundred units. The the physical messiness of it, like you will, you'd be glad to give away some of your margin in okay. order to not have to touch every box. Yep, yep, exactly, and and that's that, that is it is really invaluable. I mean, otherwise you will, you literally won't be doing your next product right. The time it takes to fulfill the first one and get the logistics down, you could have done another product by now. Right, and right? that's I keep hearing that from folks. That's where I look for, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk to you and highlight the, you know, you specifically, because you've got something that's working, it's underway, but also the general idea that there's going to be other ways to approach this. You know, some people self-host, and, and there's mm-hmm. there's some private label, I think Indiegogo, and uh, was it CrowdTilt? Some other folks are now doing, essentially, like, put a crowdfunding campaign on your site, or I helped, mm-hmm. I've helped sites build their own, essentially, crowdfunding thing, that, that the model doesn't have to be go to Kickstarter, or go to Indiegogo. It can right. be think about 
the right approach for what you're trying to do. So for Bunny, mm-hmm. it's to come to you guys because he's in Singapore and yep. he goes to China and visits plants. He doesn't want to ship stuff from Singapore into his apartment to America. Probably not. You know, yeah. he wants, but, it's, but it's true also if you live in New York or a big city, you know, do you really mm-hmm. want to deal with the logistics of shipping, mm-hmm. moving stuff in and out? And I know for some people that's good because if they have something where the margin is structured in such a way, like the T-shirts that drive the – backbone of internet commerce right <laughs> some people want to touch the t-shirt because that gives them an extra you know five dollars or seven dollars right. t-shirt and if they're selling a thousand it's it's a good wage for them even as a creator yep. but a lot of people don't want to touch the thing because it's not their spe- shipping is not their specialty fulfillment well, is not their specialty yeah let's, let's, let's just take the t-shirt example right we actually actively incur discourage people from from doing t-shirts mm-hmm. or, or, or things that aren't central to their product yeah uh, and and think about it, right? Because there are you know probably four or five sizes, and maybe three colors, and uh, maybe two different styles, right? And suddenly you have dozens and dozens of SKUs, right? Right. And if you have to go through and ask each person individually which one they really wanted, right? Then you're going to be doing that for months, right? And and getting their shipping address, right? On Crowd Supply, it's a drop down menu. We have the information. Mm-hmm. You never have to touch it. We, we'll, we'll give it to you. We'll give you the information, and then we'll just ship it out for you, right? This is. But, I'll even break out like the T-shirt thing is great because again, in the model of the internet fulfilling everything we need to do in our lives, right? Is that now we have T-shirt uh, fulfillment places that work with crowdfunding projects. So I work yep. with uh, uh, United Pixel Workers, which also runs Cotton Bureau, and they were previous guests mm-hmm. on the show too, because we did about I think fifty to sixty shirts for our crowd, for our crowdfunding campaign, mm-hmm. and because I could work with them, and because they keep co- a cost well controlled, you know, I was able to offer like uh, twelve sizes. I didn't have to stock anything, and the entire burden on me was sending them a JSON file. At That's the great. End. I sent them a structured Man. thing, and they produced beautiful shirts. And two of the shirts came and didn't meet their QA from their supplier, so they got them remade and they ah. shipped them out. And everyone got them, and everyone. And so we were able to charge a good markup on it because it was unique, it was exclusive. Mm-hmm. We it was worth my handling costs in terms of the amount of money it brought into the campaign above cost. The artist got paid additional amount, and uh, and the T-shirt folks, the United Pixel workers, were delighted. And it was like this is the best thing ever. <laughs> like I want that piece of the experience for everything I do now. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what you're trying to do. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way it should be. And unfortunately, that's not the way it is usually. It's uh, hard. Well, you have to give up mar- – people don't want to give up margin because margin was yeah. precious. But it's over time, right. the amount you have to give up. I mean, let, well, let's talk about fees for a second because mm-hmm. um, you have different fees at different stages of operation. And so during right. the crowdfund – so, so and you talked about if, uh, if you're more involved in certain of the upfront aspects, there's a different mm-hmm. rate too. So how do mm-hmm. you decide and negotiate uh, You know, which parts are flat and which parts do you negotiate with – project makers for for your piece of the transactions sure so we have a flat uh five percent crowdfunding fee so if you launch a project we're going to take five percent and that's above you know the the 2.9 percent that that our payment processor takes Mm -hmm. and then if you want us to do kind of heavy you know boots on the ground marketing uh and and production of of the campaign production help then that will be another five percent uh so ten percent total once you transition, once your campaign is successful and you transition into that pre-order period while, that you're, you're gathering funds while you're manufacturing uh, the widget. And speaking of which, you know, our, our most successful campaigns have, have had, you know, up to 40% more funding on top of what their crowdfunding total is mm-hmm. uh, from just from pre-orders during the time that they, they were producing the thing. So if you want to do that, then we're going to take 10% of each transaction there. And then for the, the only thing that's really negotiated are the fulfillment fees, and it's not really a negotiation. It's just like we we give you a quote saying, "Well, your thing is the size of a bread box, and <laughs> you know it weighs this much, so we're going to charge you this much to to ship it, right?" And then the real negotiation is is just at the wholesale retail uh, interface, right, where you have the thing in your warehouse, and we're going to buy some of it and put it in our warehouse and sell it directly, mm-hmm. right? And so that you know we expect some markup there, and we and really we don't expect any more. 
uh, we want just as much as what you'd give anyone else. But this this gets into a key aspect of the film, and I was joking in the intro about shipping a gorilla, but you know that's what I feel mm-hmm. like right now that I've got <laughs> I've got tons of books to ship, and right. and the the cost of shipping varies so much. If you become a specialist in shipping, as fulfillment oh. houses are, and you now oh, yeah. are essentially you've got this aspect of fulfillment that's part of what you do, you can negotiate better rates. I know that, and you also know the mm-hmm. right shipper to go to. And mm-hmm. if you're doing something even as simple as shipping media mail, if that's part of the model yep. of what you want to do, being that's able right. to do this crazy pre store, I think the post office charges it's maybe even 50% of the top rate if you do like this crazy carrier sorting. Yeah. So there's yeah. all this efficiency you can get out. So I mean with Amazon, I'm using Amazon now has um, both standard fulfillment where you ship stuff to them and they sell it on your behalf and they have multi-channel which is great for the book side. It's a very simple thing because I'll, it's as they're shipping for me. Their multi-channel fulfillment per unit shipping price to the book is less than I would pay for shipping myself. Like less for me, if I had to handle every book and put it in a wrapper and go to the post office and get media mail rate, I would pay more than I am to have Amazon handle it. And that's astonishing. And I think people may not realize that there's money to be gained by going into a system like yours where, where you know how to do the shipping and you've negotiated and figured out the best aspects of that. Yeah, and so, so roughly speaking, you know, we have a relationship with UPS, and this relationship is is part of a, a network of of sister companies and brother companies mm-hmm. that that we're part of. Uh, so you know, we we ship you know several hundred thousand packages a year through UPS uh, as part of this network. They give you a little and discount for that. They do. It turns out <laughs> right, and so uh, you know, yes, we're going to charge you for our handling and packaging fees, but you know, roughly speaking, for you know normal sized things that's going to mean that what you would end up paying walking into to a store to ship it yourself you, you could pay that same amount roughly to us and we'll do the work for you right yeah that's and then i don't have to put I, my hands are not bloody and bleeding i don't have that's right. i don't have specialized <laughs> equipment i haven't put the wrong thing on everything i did and now the post office right. won't take it there's a funny story roman mars of uh, 99% invisible podcast he told on the podcast a few uh, on this podcast a few months ago uh, where I said um, we were talking about shipping towards first first campaign, and he said the post office wouldn't take it because they had too much. And I said, "Oh, what'd you do? Wind up just dropping them post office boxes?" He's like, "Yeah, I would sneak around town and put in ten here and ten there." I'm like, oh my god! But you know that was what they had to do. And this, this time they have a fulfillment outfit on the back and a number two. It's right. like boom! The t te- I got my t shirt. Like the crowdfunding campaign was over, and three weeks later, I think I got the t shirt. So yeah. that, yeah. It's, that's what you learn too is you yeah. figure out yeah. where your time is worth money and where where money is yeah. worth time. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you're having, you know, knowing the difference between you know how to how to ship uh, something to England that you know you could save two hundred dollars oh on shipping, yeah. right? Uh, if you just chose the right we, way to ship it. I've had conversations about the two. It's going to cost a fortune for us to ship because we're not. We only have about a little under three hundred books to ship to all mm-hmm. over the world. If mm-hmm. we had more, it might cost less because we could mm-hmm. ship a pallet to say the UK or France and have it divvied up and shipped into right. Europe that's something right. you guys know about you know if, if you're yeah. you know if I'm one person I'm gonna be like god it's gonna cost me $50 a piece to send this tiny Bluetooth radio which I don't even know if it's certified correctly for mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. but if I go to you or go to any place that does fulfillment they're gonna be like okay we make a pallet it goes over on this and then it's broken up and it's you know $10 a unit not $50 right. a unit even including the pallet shipping to Europe right. cost yeah those are the yeah. secrets Yep. <laughs> well, so here's – okay, so final question then. We talked about how yep. this all works and, and the differentiating factors and kind of what people could think about in terms of you know what they pick for the model of what they want to do, You know whether, they, whether crowd supply is the right fit for what they want to do or maybe they have more of an idea. But I'm curious if you have a space among all the products and projects you've seen where you say, I wish someone would do this or there's a, there's a paucity of projects in this area and it feels like – Maybe people could step up and create something that hasn't been created. Is there any area that, area that feels empty to you that you wish people made stuff in? Yeah, so I, I think that, uh, and this is kind of a general trend uh, across the board. Uh, but you know, the, the open source hardware, quote unquote, renaissance is is really interesting, and I think uh, kind of doing for hardware what what open source software did for software you know, a couple decades ago. And we're starting to see a lot of innovation there. Uh, you know, I think we're we're lucky enough to be working with Bunny again, and he has a great project, which which he's been talking about a little bit, uh, called the, the Novena Open Source Laptop. And we expect that to launch on Crowd Supply in, in another couple of months. Uh, and that's exactly the sort of project we, we'd love to see, you know, something that, that is uh, somewhat audacious and uh, you know ambitious and that people 
instantly understand and, and want to have, right? Uh, and they're like, well, that's, that's, that makes my world better. Well, right? I noticed you got a tag. I'm looking at the Helium, for instance, the mm-hmm. supercapacitor-powered portable speaker that funded uh, in December. And uh, you've got a hackable tag. Mm-hmm. So if I tap the hackable tag, I can see all the products that are designed for yep. me as a user to make yep. changes. That's a very interesting idea. Yep. And that's and you know that and that really reflects our bent as engineers and product developers. Uh you know, we, we want to be able to take things apart and and change them and uh you know misuse and abuse them uh, as as we see fit. So so that's that's something I'd love to see more of. And and Bunny's you know, Bunny's projects in general, but especially this laptop project is exactly uh, along those lines. Great. Well, he is one of the most, one of the people making some of the most interesting, provocative, mm-hmm. sometimes unintentionally provocative <laughs> stuff uh, in the world. That's great. Well, yeah. Yeah. Joshua, thank you so much for taking us through what you guys are doing. And, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing what the next year brings to you. This is just, you're about to be a year since launch. Is that's, that right? It'll be March 20th. Yeah. So this month will be a year. That's year, uh, excellent. Yeah. So you're part of a, the, the next wave of crowdfunding where uh, it's the Baroque stage of crowdfunding where <laughs> models bifurcate right. and differentiate. So, so thank you for being on the podcast. Hey, I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at v-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.